You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Uh, Let's open up to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. We are going through the Bible verse by verse, picking up right where we left off. The ushers are in the aisles. Raise your hands. They'll give you a Bible. You'll enjoy the study so much more with a Bible in your lap. And uh, I want to encourage you, church, uh, have a paper Bible. Because we might very well find that the App Store pulls Bibles away from us. It would not be a big stretch right now for that to happen. And uh, when you have a paper Bible, you can take notes, you can write all kinds of insights in it, you can highlight it, mark it up. Uh, it, it's, not a, it's not a sin to mark up your Bible, write in it, and uh, take notes. Uh, anyway, we're going through verse by verse. Uh, Matthew twenty two fifteen. title of the message, The Insurmountable Messiah. The insurmountable Messiah. Let me set the stage for that a little bit. Jesus has been exposing the wretched financial greed and corruption of Israel's religious leaders. You'll remember we've been studying Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And the next day, Monday morning, he curses the fig tree and goes into the temple and he overturns all the tables in the temple. Why? Because he's exposing the religious leaders' financial greed and wickedness. They had been using religion for monetary gain. They have been using religion to line their own pockets with silver. They have been using uh, fleecing God's people for selfish gain. And Jesus hates that. He hates that. And he overturns the tables and he says, You have made my house. He calls the temple his house. Wow. You have made my house a den of thieves. And he overturns the tables and he uh, just really ruins uh, their, their religious scam of a system that was fleecing the people of money. Jesus exposed them. If that were not enough, Jesus then went on to give three parables that further exposed the spiritual unbelief and ungodliness and unscrupulous hypocrisy of Israel's religious leaders. He revealed that not only were they, were they greedy financially, but they didn't even know God. They weren't walking with God or doing his will. They were actually enemies of the work that Jesus was trying to do. And he revealed that through those three parables that we studied. And so the, the religious leaders are really torqued. Jesus has took away their financial profits. Jesus has exposed their religious hypocrisy. And if that were not enough, uh, they, they really resented uh, just how successful Jesus was. The wisdom that he spoke with. The profound teaching gift that he had. The fact that when he spoke, 
lives just flourished in front of him. They went from withering to blossoming just at the entrance of his words. The Bible says the entrance of your words give light. They give life to, the, to, the, to those who hear them. And Jesus, when he spoke, people just flourished. Their lives were transformed. They were, they were healed right in front of him. Their blindness was taken away. Their lameness was removed. They were able to walk. They were able to move forward. They were able to, uh, the physical was a picture of the spiritual. They were able to move forward in wholeness and health because of Jesus' words. And so many multitudes were following Jesus. And he had this power and authority and wisdom and discernment. And the religious leaders were really jealous of all of that as well. And so uh, they, all these things were working uh, in their wicked little hearts against Jesus. Furthermore, and moreover, I should say, the thing that bothered them even the most was that Jesus proclaimed to be someone. Who did he proclaim to be? The Messiah, the Son of the living God, God in the flesh. And to the religious leaders, that was blasphemy. And for these reasons, they have uh, wickedness in their heart. Israel's religious leaders are working full-time now on ensnaring Jesus, on entrapping Jesus. And they want to make him a false prophet. Uh, why do they want to make him a false prophet? Why are they trying to set Jesus up to be a false prophet? What was their motive? If they make him a false prophet, what can they do? They can kill him. By the way, this is the definition of extreme wickedness when through a religious disguise, you're trying to promote your own wickedness. How diabolical can you get? They are trying to look righteous as they have murderous uh, intentions on their heart. And so they are now working full-time on uh, bringing uh, Jesus to this place of being a false prophet so they can kill him. We are only two or three days away from Jesus' death in the story uh, that we're on today. Uh, only two or three days away from Jesus' crucifixion. So let's pick it up. Uh, with that introduction, that kind of sets the stage for where we are. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 15. Uh, put your finger there, Matthew 22:15, And with your finger there, give me a big amen. amen. I love that we're all there looking, reading God's word. Uh, now, when the Pharisees, uh, excuse me, then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. Well, again, why do they want to entangle Jesus in his talk? So they can make him a false prophet. And they want him to be a false prophet? So they can murder him. Uh, they went and had a meeting, right? Behind closed doors. They're strategizing. Hey, what can we do to set a snare for Jesus? What can we do to make him look bad in front of all the people? And they come up with this plan. They've got this plan. Look what they do. Verse 16. And they sent to him. They sent to Jesus. Look at this. Who do they send? Their disciples. Who's the their? Who is it? Look at verse 15. Who's the their? Pharisees. The Pharisees send their disciples. They don't go themselves. They go incognito. 
They kind of go covert, right? They, they send their disciples, and look at this. They send their disciples, the Pharisees' disciples, with the Herodians. Circle the word Herodians. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Saying, teacher, we know that you are true. And we know that you teach the way of God in truth. And we know that you do not care about anyone. For you do not regard the person of men. They, we, we read that and they go, you don't care about anyone. That sounds like they're insulting them. That's not what they're doing. They're saying, we know that you're not a respecter of persons. Or in other words, we know that you don't give favoritism to those who are really rich. To those who are powerful. To those who are in high position. To those who are famous and can like you on social media. And really make your name go forward. No, no, no. You treat the lowly and the broken, and the homeless, and the alcoholic, and the drug addict, and the, uh, the addicted, and the, the struggling, and you treat them all the same. Those who can help you, you don't give special favor to. Those who are broken, you don't turn away. Look at these accolades that they give Jesus. Uh, you, we know that you are a teacher uh, of God's word, that you teach God's word in truth. We know that you are true. We know that you're no respecter of persons, that you treat all people the same. Here's the question. Well, then why aren't you falling at his feet and worshiping him? Why is evil on your heart? If you know these things about him, why aren't you following him? And here we see something very interesting. I asked you to circle the word Herodians. Here we have the Pharisees, and now we have the Herodians. The Herodians, they're working together, the, the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Herodians were Jews who belonged to the group of the Sadducees. Everybody say Sadducees. Sadducees. That was a religious sect, and they were the aristocrats. They were the creme de la creme. They were wealthy. They were powerful. They had a lot of political influence, hence the name Herodians, right? They sat at Herod's table. They had influence in government. They thought government was the way. They thought that reform was going to happen through government, and they used their influence and their power. They were all about, you know, their, their position, and here we see something really interesting. We see that the Pharisees and the Herodians, which were of the group of the Sadducees, the sect of the Sadducees, we see here a bizarre alliance based on what? Based on a hatred of Jesus. This is a bizarre alliance to happen together. The Sadducees have very different doctrine than the Pharisees. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in spirits. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in any of this stuff. They only believe in the first five books of Moses, which means they don't believe in the Psalms or the Proverbs or the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. All that. They, they ignore all that. They only believe in the first five books. And they were normally at odds. They were doctrinally off track with the Pharisees. And here we see a very strange alliance. 
a bizarre alliance based on a mutual hatred. Mariah, put that slide up for me. Thank you. Uh, uh, A bizarre alliance based on a mutual hatred. By the way, when you have an alliance, when you have a friendship that isn't centered on, on love, that isn't centered on altruistic reasons, that is not a good alliance. And so here they have this alliance. It's a strange alliance. It's based on their hatred to Jesus. And they've been plotting. They've been scheming. They come in verse 17. Look what they say. Uh, Tell us, after they tell Jesus all these wonderful things about him, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And here they think they have this really brilliantly laid snare to trap Jesus. Why? Because if he says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, what is that going to do for his popularity with the Jews? It's going to damage it. And the Jews are going to go, wait a minute, well, you think we should? No, no, no. Uh, Rome's our enemy, right? We've not, we don't want to... And if they say, if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes, then what can they do? Then they can go to Rome and say, this guy's causing an insurrection. He's saying we shouldn't pay taxes in Rome. Either way, they think they win. And they have worked behind the scenes this this bizarre alliance based on a hatred of Jesus, the scribes, uh, excuse me, the Sadducees, uh, the Herodians and the Sadducees, and the, the disciples of the Pharisees all coming together, and they think they got this perfect snare set. Well, let's see what Jesus does. The title of the message is The Insurmountable Messiah, The Unstoppable Messiah. Uh, let's look at the profound wisdom Jesus gives. Verse 18. Jesus perceived their wickedness and he said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? I love this. Jesus goes straight to the heart. He doesn't nibble on any of the flattery. He sees straight to the heart of their intent. Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? The Bible says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro. He's always looking at us. The Bible says that all things are naked before him whom we have to give an account. He sees right into the heart of everything that we are doing. And this ought to do one of two things, perhaps both. It ought to bring us tremendous comfort. God knows my heart. I so often fail. I so often don't do what I want to do. And I do what I don't want to do. And oh, wretched man that I am, right? Oh, Lord, I wish I was righteous. I wish I was uh, uh, sinless. I wish I wasn't so selfish. I wish I wasn't so lusty. I wish I wasn't so greedy. I wish I wasn't so egotistical. I wish I wasn't so prideful. Lord, help me. Have mercy on my soul. And he says, oh, I understand. I see your heart. Uh, Amazing. Amazing. But on the other hand, oh, how fearful to know that God sees the true intent of my heart. Uh, He sees all the way through. I mean, there's no veneer that I can put on that will fool him. He sees right into us. 
Uh, I don't often know the true intents of our hearts, uh, of, of my heart. It's hard for us to. Uh, but here's something very amazing. The Bible says that the word of God is powerful and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to divide between soul and spirit, between thoughts and intents of the heart. I can't know my heart apart from God's word. But by God's word, God's word reads me and it exposes my heart and it brings things to light that I have to say, oh Lord, that's me. There's some Pharisee in me. There's some hypocrisy in me. Lord, cleanse me of my sin and lead me on the right path. Oh, how wonderful to have a Savior that sees right to the core of who we are and gives us his word to guide us. Um, so uh, they ask this question. Jesus says, oh, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Look at verse 19. Look what Jesus does. He says, show me the tax money. So they brought to him a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage. The equivalent would be, uh, they brought him a $100 bill. Bring me a, bring me a denarius. Bring me, a, bring me the tax money. So they bring him a $100 bill. Uh, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? Inscription, the Greek word lego. Whose image and lego is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled and they left. They left him and went their way. Oh, they thought they had him in a snare. They thought they had him in a trap. Oh, either way, we got him. And he comes up with an answer that they never dreamed of. And it was so profound, it read them, it exposed them. They were cut to the heart and they leave. Oh, how I wish it said, and they were cut to the heart, and they saw his wisdom, and they fell down on their knees, and they worshiped him as Lord. Oh, how I wish it said that, but it didn't. It doesn't. Uh, uh, and look at the answer Jesus gave. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Whose image is on that coin? Caesar's. Well, then render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. I want you to notice the verb it uses. What is the verb that it uses? Render. It's not give. It's render. Render implies an ownership. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus is saying, hey, it is right to pay your taxes. Give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. There's a moral responsibility we have to pay our taxes. And uh, I look at our generation today, uh, and I'm, I'm concerned about some things. We seem to be thinking that the government exists. We're moving towards socialism. That the government should just take care of us on all things. I look at these PPP loans that are going out. And I tell you, all things are legal, but all things are not right. Just because it's legal doesn't mean we should be doing it. And we've had all these stimulus checks. And now, now a third one is coming. And I'm like, I don't want your money. 
right? We, we don't want a socialized society. And we don't want to get used to having these handouts all the time. Look at anyone that gets handouts from the government regularly and watch what happens. They don't become more productive. They become less productive. They don't become more independent. They become more dependent. It doesn't work. And the Bible says that the borrower is a slave to the giver. And Jesus says, pay your taxes. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Whose name is on that? Whose image is on that? Give to him what, you know. Uh, and and, and uh, a couple things. Uh, I know unemployment uh, in, you know, benefits are really high right now. And I know there's a lot of people tempted to just take advantage. Hey, I make, get more money from this and I do work. It's not okay. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right. Hey, there's a time and a place for all things. There's a season for all things. And if you're in between jobs and you need that, to, but let's not take advantage of it and not be looking for work, right? Let's be responsible. Jesus wants his church to be the head and not the tail. To be the giver and not the borrower. To be the, uh, right, we are, well, I, I don't want to go too much here, but are you with me on this? Uh, let me get one more thing just that needs to be hit today. Render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. Our police deserve our respect and our submission to their authority. Amen. Right? I mean, these are the people that are laying down their lives to bring law and order to our land. That we ought to hold them in high esteem and render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. Let's respect our police. Hey, here's what I would love. I would love all, I wrote a letter to the police department last week. I would love all of us just thanking them and encouraging them and, and saying, hey, I know you're getting hit on right now and I just want you to know how much we appreciate you. And here's what I would love. Man, when you see a, a, a police officer, man, woman, whatever, police officer, and they're at, at, at Rubio's in line and front of you buy their lunch pat them on the back and tell them you're with them all the way uh, uh, when you're walking by man just make sure you stop and you say hey, look them in the eye and say man I just want you to know how much I appreciate you uh, let's bring order back into our land our prayer meeting man we, we need to get our hearts right before God that we are on the right track on these things and Jesus says render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar it's it's important and he doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, don't worry about that stuff. No, it's important. This is God's will. Uh, there's not, no authority that isn't established by God, and, and we need to respect authority. Teach our kids to respect authority. Uh, but I want to move on to the most important part on this. He says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Whose image is on the coin? That's Caesar's image. Oh, then render to Caesar the things which belong to Caesar. And now render to God the things that belong to God. Wow. What a profound answer. And it begs the question, right? Whose image is on the coin? Oh, that's Caesar's. Whose image is on you? Oh. Jesus taking us back to his creation in Genesis. When the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit said, let us 
make man in our image, in our likeness. You were created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. You were created in his likeness. Whose image is on the coin? Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Whose image is on you? Give to God what belongs to God. You belong to God. And God created you to walk with him and to be with him and to abide in him and to bear glory to him as you walk with wisdom and discernment in all that God calls you to. Uh, oh, how amazing. Render to God the things that belong to God and, and you, you belong to God. Oh, the insurmountable wisdom of Jesus Christ. It is pure. It is, a, it is just immutable truth that cannot be argued. And, and his, his opponents, uh, they just they fall away in his presence. Uh, his wisdom is so profound. Jesus is saying that which belongs to God should never be taken and offered to Caesar. Let me say that again. That which belongs to God should never be taken and offered to anything else but God. And it begs the question, right? Like, like uh, where are we offering ourselves to? Our heart belongs to God. Where are we giving our heart? What are we giving it to? Are we giving it to business? Are we giving it to surfing? Are we giving it to hobbies? Are we giving it to our outward appearance? What are we all about? Let me ask you, what is your master passion? What has your heart? Give unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar, but give unto God. Don't give to, don't give to Caesar that which belongs to God. Don't give to your business that which belongs to God. Don't give to your hobby that which belongs to God. You were made for him. And what are you presenting your heart to? It's very interesting, by the way, that our heart is the source of all things. And that our mind and our strength merely follow our heart. You would think your heart would follow your mind, but that is not the case. Your mind follows your heart. The Bible says wherever your heart is, there will your treasure be also. There will your strength be and your finances be and everything. Your, your, your mind and your strength simply follow your heart, which it is why it is so important we are to guard our heart. In our staff devotions a couple of weeks ago, I took us to this passage, and it says, the wise man holds his heart in his right hand. The fool walks without considering. Do you understand what that means? In the Bible, the right hand is symbolic of uh, the place of prominence. He's, he's my right-hand man, we say. That's a place of prominence. And the Bible says that a wise man holds his heart in his right hand, a place of prominence. The fool walks without even really thinking about what he's presenting his heart to. Are you thinking about what you're presenting your heart to? You see, everything you present your hearts to changes your worldview. Changes the way you think. The things that you value. To where you put your strength and your fine. Everything that... And so we need to be really careful. The Bible tells us that we're to guard our hearts. Look at this verse in Proverbs chapter 4. 
This is Proverbs 4, verse 23. Let me hear you read the great memory verse, by the way. Uh, let me hear you read this out loud. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Uh, guard your heart with all what? Diligence. Interesting choice of verbs. Diligently guard your heart. It's prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take it and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Uh, above all else, guard your heart with all diligence. For out of it flow what? All the issues of life. Our heart, not our mind, determines our worldview. And when Jesus has our heart, we will walk in light with a biblical worldview. We will walk in light with a biblical worldview. If Jesus doesn't have our heart, we will walk in darkness with a carnal worldview. Mariah, please put that slide up. Thank you so much. When Jesus has our heart, we'll walk in light with the biblical worldview. Our heart determines our course of our strength and our mind and our finances and everything. It comes out of our, our heart. Our politics, our sexuality, our morality, the sanctity of life, uh, human responsibility, all of it flow out of the issues of the heart. Our worldview flows out of our heart. And when Jesus has our heart, we walk in light. When Jesus doesn't have our heart, we walk where? In darkness. And when you walk in darkness, you don't know what you stumble on. When it's dark in the middle of the night and I'm walking to the bathroom and there's a high heel on the floor, yowza! How'd that happen? That doesn't happen in the daytime. That only happens in the dark when you can't see where you're going. When Jesus gives you light, you have clarity to understand how to lead your family, to understand how to act on the job, to understand how to act on a date, to understand how to move about. We have light. Jesus gives us light. Do you realize that your heart is the one that all these issues flow? Let me prove it to you. If you have Jesus on your heart, you're going to try to walk in the things that he cares about. It's going to affect your sexuality. You might be tempted all over the place, but you're going to say, Lord, I want to remain pure. I know that you value the marriage bed undefiled. One man, one woman coming together for life. A, a, a holy union created by God and nothing, I don't want anything to come between that. If Jesus isn't on your heart, your sexual perversion will steer you and you'll start saying, uh, I don't think this is really sin. And we first start questioning if this is right or not. I don't think this is sin. And then we start moving further. We don't stop there. We go from, I don't think this is sin, to then saying, this isn't sin. And then we go from saying, this isn't sin, to saying, this is right. And then we go from saying, this is right, to then saying, no. Now we promote this. And it's interesting, all of that came not from the head, but from the heart. So, 
I think it's okay that I sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. And then I think it's okay if I sleep with a guy or I sleep, if you're a girl, I sleep with a girl. And, and none of that is coming from the head. It's all coming from the heart and your heart affects your entire worldview. I want you to know something. Uh, as long as I'm pastor here at the Mission Church, we will always have a men's bathroom and a women's bathroom. <laughs> And it's almost embarrassing that we applaud that, right? Like, think how rudimentary, think how elementary that is. And yet today, it's like profound wisdom. It shows you how much darkness we're in, right? It's crazy. It's crazy. And it is so important that we guard our heart. Now, here's the question. How do we guard our heart? Whose image is on the coin? Oh, that's Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Whose image is on you? Oh, that's the divine God. Give to God what belongs to God. What belongs to God? Your heart. How then do I guard my heart? Guard your heart above all else, for out of it flow the issues of life. Keep it with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of How do you do it? Well, let's take the verse in context. That was Proverbs 4.23. Let's back up to Proverbs 4.20, and let's look at this. Give attention to my words. Read this with me. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Look what this says. Uh, oh, that's fine. Keep your... <laughs> Keep your heart with all diligence. So for out of it spring the issues of life. Here we see the context of that verse. Now let's go back. Uh, look what he says. Give attention to what? My word. Give attention to my word. That's how you keep your heart with all diligence. The entrance of your word brings light. The entrance of your word brings life, the scripture tells us. Light and life. Look what he says. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of where? Your heart. God taught this all through Scripture over and over and over again. He would tell the Israelites, write my word on the doorpost of your house. Uh, my wife puts Scripture all over our house in these beautifully framed, you know, nice looking things. And that's wonderful. Uh, that's a cool thing. God said, write my scripture on the doorpost of your house. Put it as between the frontlets between your eyes. And so the Jews, guess what they would do? They would make a thing called the phylactery. It was a little leather pouch. And they would put God's word on it. And they would tie it on their foreheads. And they would miss the entire point. <laughs> Putting God's word on between your eyes does not mean tie it literally. It means let your eyes always be centered and focus on my instruction. My commandments are not to take away joy. My commandments are to give you life and life abundant. And they do. I am a happily married man. I am just incredibly happily married man. I love being married. I love my wife. I love my family. And there's one reason and one reason only because I've tried to line it up with God's ways and it produces amazing fruit. Just great to walk in. 
Keep your heart with all diligence. Give attention to, your, to my word. Don't let it depart from your eyes. Hey, your house can be littered with scripture. And if it's just art, you've missed the point. Make sure it's in your heart. Make sure it's guarding your heart, not decorating your walls. Wrong intention, wrong motive. But if it's to guard your heart, beauty, beauty. Do you remember Joshua? Uh, he was Moses' uh, uh, assistant, right? And without knowing it, uh, Moses was mentoring him for 40 years. And the time came when Moses died. And guess who God calls? Joshua, it's time to walk in your role. What's my role? I want you to now take Moses' spot. Oh, Lord, those are huge shoes to fill. How many of you would like to walk in Moses' shoes? Not me, man. No, thank you. And that's what Joshua said. I can't do that. I mean, I'm not. And here's what God told Joshua. Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you should meditate in it day and night that you might learn to do according to all that is written therein. What's the instruction? Joshua, spend a lot of time in my word. Know it. So that when a situation comes up, you already know how I think about this. You already know God's will. So many Christians going, I just want to know what God's will is. You don't. You don't know what God's will is. That's a problem. God's will is not a mystery. It is clearly revealed in his word. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You should meditate in it day and night that you might learn to do according to all that is written there in it. And then he says, and then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have not I commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's Joshua 1, 8, 9, right? And, and that is the promise. Joshua, guard your heart with my word, and I will make you successful in everything you put your hand to. Oh, how rich the heritage of the saints. And this is how we guard our hearts. This is what he's called us to do. It affects our worldview. It affects everything. And when God has our heart, uh, we're, just, we're, we're right in the place where we need to be. Uh, the religious leaders' hearts were not centered on God. They were centered on self. It was all about their fame instead of God's fame. It was all about their glory instead of God's glory. It was all about their prosperity instead of the people's prosperity. It was all about them doing well instead of the people doing well. And they just used the people to get what they want. And God says, You're, that's, that's just, I, I despise this. And he overturns their tables. They were consumed with self. Give unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. And give unto God that which belongs to God. Your heart was created to be in fellowship with God. It's what it was created for. Now render it to him. Again, not give, but render. There's a belonging. There's an ownership. It's his already. You are his. And when the Pharisees and the Herodians heard these words of Jesus, they marveled, oh, the insurmountable wisdom of Jesus. 
They thought they had him trapped, and uh, 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 boy, they got judged instead. But instead of repenting, they hardened their hearts, and they went their way. And look what happens. After the Pharisees, uh, the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians lead, leave, uh, guess what happens? Now the next group, the Sadducees, come, and they try to defeat Jesus. Uh, look at verse 23. Uh, read those first three words with me in verse 23. The same, the same stinking day. They didn't take it to heart. The same day, the Sadducees, those are the ones who don't believe in the resurrection, who don't believe in angels, who don't believe in spirits. The Sadducees, that's why they were sad, you see, right? Uh, <laughs> the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection came to him and asked him, they're testing him, they're setting a snare for him, and they ask him a ridiculous question. Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring for his brother. That was the Mosaic law of the kinsman redeemer. Notice who the Sadducees are appealing to. Who are they appealing to? To Moses. And that's because they only embrace the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch. Uh, the first five books. They don't, uh, you know, like I said, they don't believe the Psalms, Proverbs, pro uh, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all that stuff. And so they go to Moses, say Moses, and they bring up this, this law of the kinsman redeemer. Here's what that law was. When the children of Israel went into the promised land and God gave them the promised land as an inheritance, he divided them up into their 12 tribes and he gave each tribe a big chunk of land. And then within that tribe, that, lot, that land was allocated to each family in that land. And so it was their divine inheritance given to them by God, the, the promised land of Israel. And it was passed on from generation to generation. So that if a man had a son, the land would go from the father to the son and it would stay, <clears throat> excuse me, in the family. But if a, if a man died before he had a son, what then would happen to the land? Well, here was God's law on that. The man's brother would then go into his brother's wife, give her a child, and now that child would receive the inheritance of the land and the land would stay in the family in the deceased father's name. Does that make sense? And uh, so they appeal to that. That's verse 24. Now they make up this story based on that commandment that God gave Moses. Verse 25. This was, this is what happened in their think tank uh, when they were all conspiring against Jesus. We got this great snare that we're going to set for him. Here it is. Verse 25. Now there were seven brothers. The first died after he married, having no offspring. And he left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also. In other words, the second one died with still no offspring. And then the third died with no offspring. And the fourth died with no offspring. And these, these guys just keep dying off. At some point you go, what is she feeding these guys, right? <laughs> what the heck? I mean, how would you like to be the sixth brother, right? And you're like, I'm not touching you with a 10-foot pole, man. Everything that touches you dies. <laughs> And this is this ridiculous story they come up with, right? All the way to the seventh brother. <laughs> Verse 27. 
Last of all, the woman died. No offspring. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Oh, I would like to see their faces after they tell this story. They look up, finishing telling the story, like, aren't we amazing? <laughs> we got you now. We're going to just a smug look on their face. They look like Rachel Maddow on a... On a <laughs> just this smug look on her face, like, I got you, right? Uh, and... And they think they got this perfect setup, right? We're like, look how ridiculous believing in a resurrection is. I mean, what could you possibly answer to this, right? We got them. Verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. I love that. You're wrong. I want you to know something. The Bible does not mean whatever you want it to mean for you. There is right theology and there is wrong theology. And Jesus says right here unequivocally, your theology is wrong. The Bible says, First uh, Peter, no prophecy of scripture is of private interpretation. Here's what that means. Nothing written in the Bible is for you to decide what it means for yourself. It means what God said it means, and it's our job to figure that out. There is different application. It might, might have different application for me than it has for you, but it has one specific meaning. And our job and our delight is to discover what that is, right? Uh, Jesus says, you're wrong. And he gives them two reasons why they're wrong, right? Look at the two reasons. See if you can find them. What are they? What's the first reason he gives? The first reason you're wrong is because you don't know your Bibles. The reason that we spend so much time every Sunday morning in the scripture, a 50-minute Bible study is because scripture is important that we know it. Now, I want you to be the best-fed sheep in the world. I want you to have a great meal every time you come to church. I want you to learn your Bibles. Not only do I want to give you a good sermon, but my heart, my goal, my desire is to teach you how to study your Bible so that you're becoming a better student of the Bible without me. By the... By the uh, hermeneutics that we use in, 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 in the sermons, right? How we unpack scripture. He says, you're wrong. And the first reason you're wrong is because you don't know your Bible. And the second reason? You don't know the power of God. Wow. Such profound truth. Jesus, once again, just speaking right to the heart. You do not know your Bibles and you do not know the power of God. For in the resurrection, verse 30, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. In other words, you have no idea what you're talking about. In the, in the resurrection in heaven, it's a whole new order. You're thinking this life 
in that life and they are not the same. It's a whole new order. Uh, there's not going to be any uh, sexual relations in heaven. There's not going to be any marriages in heaven. There's going to be emotional intimacy with everyone like there is physical intimacy with your spouse. You're going to be, when we in heaven right now, we're, our heart is on the inside. And no one can really see my heart. You only see my appearance. And my appearance might not be that great. It's not. But my heart, if you could see my heart, Jesus could see the heart. When God made Adam and Eve, I believe it was different. I believe the person you saw on the outside and when they sinned, they became naked and, and, and that spirit of God departed from them. And now there was this pretense to put on a pretense on the outside and you didn't really know it was on the inside. But in heaven, it's not that way. The, the, the intimacy won't be with one person. It will be with every person and it won't be physical intercourse. It'll be emotional, spiritual intercourse and it will be with all. There'll be a, oh, how amazing. He's saying you err and that you don't know scripture and you don't know the power of God. The power of God to remove me from this body of sin and death that has all these wrong thoughts and motives and to make me righteous and to make me holy and to set me in a family that will be righteous and holy where we will have an amazing family relationship unlike any family reunion you have right now, one that is pure and holy and righteous. You err and that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. No marriage in heaven no sexual relations in heaven. I'm sorry, Muslim terrorist. You got it wrong. You're not going to get your 70 virgins, you little pervert. That's not the way it works. Boy, they. Oh my goodness. Uh, verse 31. But concerning the resurrection of the dead. Look at the words he says. What did he say? Con verse 31. Concerning the resurrection of the dead. Have you not read? Don't you know your Bible? There is a resurrection from the dead. Concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read, religious leader, what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am, I want you to circle I am, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus here, quoting back to Exodus chapter 3, when Moses has an encounter with God, where? In a burning bush. God in a burning bush. The bush should have been consumed. The bush was on fire. And the bush wasn't consumed. The divine presence of God in an earthly bush? And it's not consumed. A picture, by the way, of Jesus. Divine presence in a physical body and by his grace, 
it's not consumed. We're not consumed. Picture of Jesus. And of the burning bush, Moses looks at it and he says, what is this? And God says what? I am that I am. The Tetragrammaton. And Moses falls on his face in reverence before God. And God said, he says, Moses, I got a job for you. I'm going to send you. He says, who do I say sent me? I am that I am. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And those men had been dead for a long time. And God uses, Jesus focuses their attention on the present tense of the verbs. Jesus, God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. He says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And therefore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must be alive for me to be their God right now, presently. And do you realize what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is doing right here what no Pharisee was ever able to do when he debated with the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection and only believed in the first five books of Moses. God, Jesus is showing from the first five books of Moses that God is the God, he's teaching the resurrection from the first five books of Moses, right? Amazing. Insurmountable wisdom, the insurmountable Messiah. Just amazing, just amazing. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were what? Astonished at his teaching. And the Sadducees leave defeated. Their clever story goes nowhere. I want you to know, Jesus unequivocally states that there is life after death. He unequivocally states it. Uh, if you are an atheist, sorry, you're wrong. If you are uh, a, a secular humanist, sorry, you're wrong. There is more to live for than this life. Uh, there, it's, just, it's, just, it's just wrong. If you are, uh, believe in thanetism, I'm sorry, you're just wrong. Uh, you do not cease to exist. You are going to live forever, one way or the other. You are either going to be in the presence of your creator, what you were created for, with the fullness of joy. Your sin will be removed. You'll be washed. You'll be cleansed. And you'll have the righteousness of Jesus Christ in a whole new order eternal life with God, or you will have eternal life separated from God where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and burning in the, in the flames of, of judgment. Uh, the choice is ours. Uh, the Bible clearly says um, that there is life after death and Jesus clearly and unequivocally taught it. Uh, Jesus talked about the, the thief on the cross, right? Uh, he, he was there and the thief, uh, even though he was a murderer and even though he was a criminal, uh, even though he was mocking Jesus, uh, he sees Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And his heart was changed and he believed that Jesus was who he said he was. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I tell you assuredly, what? Today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say, I tell you assuredly, today you'll be dead. <laughs> today you'll be with me in paradise 
Jesus repeatedly and unequivocally taught life after death. Jesus says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you the truth. I go to prepare a place for you. Where did he go to prepare a place for you? Yeah, there's a lot of theologians who teach heaven, but I don't think that's right. I think that's a... I go to prepare a place for you, and where he went to prepare a place for you was on the cross. That's how he prepared a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions, and I want you there, and I'm going to the cross to prepare a place for you there. And I think that in context, that's the truth, because they said, we don't know where you're going. And Jesus says, you know where I'm going. I'm going to the cross. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? And Jesus repeatedly taught these things. Jesus taught the parable, uh, excuse me, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man uh, is in torment and anguish after death. And Lazarus, the beggar, is there in the presence, uh, in, the, in Abraham's bosom there, which is, you know, bliss. And, and heaven and hell are real. And it's interesting, uh, you can't get away from it. All of humanity feels the pull of the afterlife. Virtually every people group, virtually every religion believes in some kind of afterlife because the Bible says eternity has been written on man's hearts. You know there's more than this. You know it. Even the ancient Egyptians knew there was an afterlife. Why? Because eternity is written on man's hearts. And the Old Testament writers uh, spoke of eternal life after death all the time, right? Uh, David in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He ends the psalm with surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And then when this life is over, I will stand in the house of the Lord, what? Forever. Just amazing, right? Uh, So good. Uh, Psalm 49 on your screens. Let me hear you read this. Uh, The psalmist wrote, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me, Selah, which means meditate on this. There's more to life than just this life. Think on it. Of course, that classic passage in Job. You remember Job when he's just about ready to die. He's got boils all over him. His physical health is just falling apart. Look what Job says in Job 19. Let me hear you read this. After my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Wow. Job says, yeah, my flesh, it's about ready to die, but this I know, in my flesh, I will see God. The oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, and Job was speaking of the resurrection. I'll see it for myself. Look how this verse ends. How my heart yearns within me. Job saying, I can't wait to stand in his presence. I've got a good friend, a member of the church, uh, uh, battling cancer, and uh, I was at the hospital last Saturday with him, happened to be there right when the doctor came in and told him, hey, it's terminal, we're going to put you on hospice. And I was sitting by George's side, George, George Haber, just a great man, uh, and, and there sitting by his side, tears began to flow, and we just began to talk, and I said, George, you're so blessed. I'm jealous. 
I long for the day. You're going to stand before your creator. He's going to behold you. He's going to look deep into your eyes. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Job would say, oh, how my heart yearns within me. And I tell you, mine does too. I am hard pressed between the two. Part of me desires to go right now to be of the Lord, which is far better. Jesus clearly and unequivocally taught there's life after death. It's all through the New Testament. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's important we understand. When the people heard these words, uh, Jesus, they just silenced, he silenced the Sadducees. They were astonished. And again, we see the insurmountable wisdom of Jesus. Jesus did what no scribe or, or Pharisee had ever been able to do. He proved, as I mentioned, from the Torah, the resurrection of the dead. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless. God bless.